It's frightening to think how much life can change in an instant. Hey, and let's see if I can catch up with William. Woohoo! Here I come. <laughs> That's the sound of William Tyrrell with his foster parents. The innocent playfulness of a child having fun. It was the sudden absence of this sound on the morning of September 12, 2014, that made William's family realize something was terribly wrong. I'm 10 News First's Leah Harris, and this podcast will tell the full story about the case that has baffled the nation, exploring the question asked so many times since that day almost five years ago. Where's William Tyrrell? Here I come. Where's that William guy? You're doing really well. (laughs) Someone out there knows something. Something they've kept hidden all this time. Where's that William guy? Where's William Tyrrell? A 10 Speaks podcast launching Monday, June 24. Welcome to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode uh, 14. We're going to spring a little surprise on you this time. I am the hack. I remain the hack. Hugh Remington here. But uh, PVO, Peter Van Onselen, has gone on holiday for a couple of weeks, the lazy bugger. So we've had to find a new professor. We've managed to uh, track down a very good one. Personally, I think even better than PVO, if you're listening, uh, Peter. Uh, He's not a professor, but he is a senior fellow at ANU and the former chief political correspondent and national affairs editor with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Mark Kenny. Welcome. How are you? Thank you, Hugh. Great to be here. You're our stand-in professor and you're a bit of a democracy sausage, I'm told, as well. <laughs> yeah, that's the name of my podcast. So, uh, yes, get into that if you get a chance. Soon we'll be... Uh, it's a bit like coffee in uh, inner-city Melbourne where there are more people making it than there are left to drink it. There are, <laughs> there are more people making podcasts than there are people to listen to them, but... Uh, I'm grateful to anyone listening to this um, and good to have you on board, uh, Mark. Now, we're at the point where we're just about in the next couple of weeks to see uh, a new parliament and uh, the Governor-General will roll up and he will do, as uh, form and tradition requires, map out in a speech the sort of legislative agenda of the new Scott Morrison government in the 46th Parliament. And the big mystery is, what is the agenda of the Scott Morrison government? Well, you're right. It is something of a mystery because really what the election was about was about not voting for Labor. That was certainly the government's major pitch. It had its tax cuts, this uh, whole series of uh, tax cuts, so the three-stage series really, the bottom one or the first stage of which is has bipartisan agreement uh, and those are those tax cuts which, are, which were promised to flow from July 1 but which of course can't because the parliament hasn't yet sat. The government must have known that at the time. Then there's disagreement over stages two and three, which come in in 2022 and 2024. So, you know, some way down the track. Now, there's enough controversy around that to uh, sustain some political arguments, some argy-bargy over uh, coming weeks or months. Who knows how that's going to go? It does depend on whether the government can get the numbers or, uh, you know, from the crossbench or whether Labor decides to roll over on 
on uh, on the whole thing. We don't know where that's going to land at the moment. But beyond all of this, the government really doesn't have much of an agenda that it's articulated. It's you know talked in the in the election campaign about. I think it was $100 billion worth of infrastructure spending that's uh, in the pipeline. That's all well and good. Again, there's not going to be much disagreement over it and a lot of that will be a long way down the track. Um, but as far as legislative uh, program, as far as kind of, you know, sort of a defining uh, sort of manifesto for this third term of the coalition, which I guess Scott Morrison is going to try and market really as a first term, but in terms of all of that, it is a bit thin and... As you say, the Governor General reads this uh, reads this speech at the start of the new parliament. Uh, he or she refers to my government and talks about what my government is going to do over the course of the term. So we'll be looking with some interest as to whatever that is, because uh, we don't really know what this government's going to do beyond tax cuts and a few a few other sort of minor things. Of course, events, to use the great word, uh, sometimes present any government with uh, the thing that defines them, the stuff that didn't form any part of the uh, political campaign, uh, whether it was a 9-11 event or a GFC-type event, uh, whatever might come out of China over the next couple Mm. of years or out of the global economy. uh, These are the kinds of events that uh, can suddenly become defining for for a government, but uh, we can't predict what those might be. Not and they the... tend not to be very good. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No, there, there are very few events that come out of a clear blue sky that miraculously improve everyone's well-being. Yes. So, well, let's talk about tax because it goes down um, to a really interesting fundamental debate in some ways. And that is, what is a mandate? This is a bit tedious mm. and technical, I suppose, but the government says, look, we went to the election with these three tranches of tax cuts. The third of them doesn't come into play until 2024, 2025. So in Mm. other words, it's into the next electoral cycle. There's another election to take place before that comes along. I've got some views about this, but I'm interested in yours. Can you claim a mandate for something which is falling outside the electoral, um, you know, the term of the current parliament? Yeah, it's a very good question, Hugh, because the whole question of mandate, the whole argument over mandate is a contested one all the time anyway. Even within this term, uh, you would often have an argument about mandate because governments always say that they put these things to the electorate, they were quite clear about them and therefore, having been elected, having been able to form a government, that they are now within their rights to pursue that. The parliament should get out of the way, particularly the Senate, where the government uh, doesn't need to have control and rarely does, the Senate should get out of the way, respect the will of the Australian voters and pass legislation. However, the individual senators always take the view, particularly uh, as we have these uh, increasingly kind of, um, you know, uh, I suppose, assertive crossbenchers, they always take the view that the voters have given them a very specific review and and adjust role or sometimes veto role in respect of legislation that is not in their interest or in the state interest that they come from or whatever it might be. So, you know, it's a contested idea even within a government term. What this government's proposing is to uh, is that the parliament should get out of the way because it has a mandate for these tax uh, changes, for these tax cuts that will be very generous for people at the top end eventually when they come in. I think in excess of $11,000 a year for the top income brackets in in lower taxes as a result of these cuts. And as you say, they don't come into 2024-25. Um, 
So there is a real kind of, uh, there's a double argument here. Do you have a mandate for these tax cuts in exactly the way you're proposing them? And can you even have a mandate for a subsequent term of parliament? I mean, there's going to yeah, be an election. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to argue against myself on this. It, it, will, it will make this argument. And that is that I believe you have to be able to claim a mandate for a long-term vision. One of the problems that we argue about in, in Australian political life is that everything's short-termism. Everything's based on the next news poll and so on. Mm. Uh, we were reminded of this a little bit with the Hawke uh, funeral orations that came in about how much uh, he and Keating really did have a long-term uh, transformative agenda. Yeah. But, uh, but they did it piecemeal as they went. But even if you look at things like, say, big defence acquisition programs, submarines and so on, mm. they go well outside uh, the the three-year term of a parliament. And so you have to, at some stage, commit to some things. But uh, I'm not sure about tax returns where uh, it's into another election when you don't know what the economic circumstances are going to be when that comes to pass. Uh, it, they could be worse than they are now. Mm. Uh, so to me, when it comes to tax mandates into the next thing, I think there is some ground for the Labor Party and others to argue that it doesn't uh, it doesn't apply. But it seems what we are going to get is definitely this first stage tax return, which will mean that um, low and middle income earners will get uh, a, a one thousand and a, up to one thousand and eighty dollar money back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not bad. Yeah. And then stage two comes in in twenty twenty two, which is really shifting the top um, income threshold. This is for the 19% tax bracket. So those are on the lowest, uh, lower level incomes. It goes up from 41 to $45,000. So that's a bit of a tax break. It'll cost the economy nearly $50 billion to do that. But that's some money in people's pockets. That's going to get through, isn't it? There's no argument about that. Well, I think there's argument about it in the sense that um, the, at the moment, Labor is saying it took a plan to the election to oppose stage two of the tax cuts. Uh, so there is at least potential argument for Labor to continue with that position. However, I think there is a recognition by Labor that it needs to acknowledge the result of the election here and that uh, whilst everyone thought Labor was going to win, it most certainly did not. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, there is a very strong kind of moral argument that uh, you know the government ought to be allowed to proceed with its tax cuts, particularly because, as I said, those tax cuts largely formed you know, sort of 80%, 90% of the whole pitch that uh, the government was putting to voters for its uh, third term. So it's not like they were hidden under a, uh, you know, under a bushel somewhere. These were, you know, this was the, the government's platform. So I think the argument within Labor about what to do now, my reading of it, and I've spoken to a few people, and they haven't settled this position, but my reading of it is that uh, they are having an argument that will that has essentially three options to maintain their current position of opposition to stages two and three. I don't think they'll do that. Uh, to agree to stage two uh, and argue that that effectively discharges their sort of um, mandate responsibility. That is, the, the, to re- ex, you know accept that the government does have a mandate for stage two. That Labor lost the election. Therefore, it lost the argument over this and it ought to just get out of the way. And then I think there'll be some people who are of the view that, look, we ought to just let the whole package through. The government is insisting that it will not break up the package. This is a key point here. The government is is insisting that it will not break up stages one, two and three. It wants the whole thing presented holus bolus. Now, that's a strong negotiating position for the government to put. It could do this without Labor potentially anyway if it can convince... uh, 
you know, the Centre Alliance senators, there's two of them, and uh, and another, um, perhaps Jackie Lambie, although it's hard to imagine her embracing these top-end tax cuts, but, you know, there's some talk about it. Um, Pauline Hanson's made some uh, noises around it, but she wants money for a coal-fired She's power got station. a very high price for her She's vote. Got, she has a very high price for her vote. Uh, and... Um, so it's possible that the and Corey government... And Cory Bernardi's there. That Cory Bernardi's already uh, indicated that he supports the... So the, gov- the government needs four, needs to find four senators out of the six crossbenchers. That's, that's basically correct. the arithmetic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, so Labor's argument is uh, is to either wave the whole lot through, oppose the whole lot, or do something in the middle, which it would argue um, is both a... You know, give, shows some respect to the verdict of the voters at the election, but which also preserves the principle that you can't bind a future parliament on such a critical spending matter. And that's, you know, it, it, goes it, to your it, point. It, yeah, it makes it amazingly interesting because if Labor was to, say, hold the view that they'll, they accept... Stage one's not at issue. Stage two, they'll accept, as you point out, that uh, the mandate exists, it's reasonable, they will vote that through. Stage three, they're not going to vote for. And so, therefore, if the package is not broken up, if it comes as three stages or nothing, Labor says, well, we'll sit on the sidelines and oppose that. It then gives enormous power to those crossbenchers to extract a lot out of the government in order to pass this because mm. the power is actually with the crossbenchers. The government doesn't want to have a... Uh, you know, a whole tax policy, basically their major policy that they took the election and not get it through. No, I agree. I think it does give a lot of power to the crossbench. And we've seen that in recent years, crossbenchers having a lot of power and and exercising that from time to time, sometimes uh, excessively. And it depends on the degree of coordination and and so forth. I I think that uh, it also contains, however, that scenario that you outlined also contains some pretty big risks for Labor because Labor would be standing in the way of tax cuts in the short term for people at the bottom end. And we know, contrary to what the government campaigned on, you know, the strong economy, its superior economic management uh, credentials and all that, we actually know the economy since the election, some truths have been told about it, it's facing some real difficulties. We've got interest rates that have just been moved to new emergency lows to try and, you know, keep some activity going in the economy. And there is a view from the Reserve Bank and from other economists that the government needs to be doing things with fiscal policy as well. You know, the bank handles monetary policy, but the government could be doing things in the, on, on the fiscal side as that well. That means cutting spending means or perhaps cut- boosting it's stimulating spending. I yeah, don't know. that's right. It could mean increasing spending, uh, but uh, doing so in a way that uh, is is stimulatory. Now, most people think that these uh, those first round tax cuts you were talking about, the up to a thousand and eighty dollars, that would come to people quite quickly within within months. Um, that that will have a a good stimulatory effect. I mean, it takes your mind back to uh, you know two thousand and eight nine with the um, with the global financial crisis and the direct cash injections that the Rudd uh, Swan government did back then, and and that did along with some other spending, uh, you know, save Australia from going into recession. So uh, these tax cuts are, are supported by both sides. They have this stimulatory, you know, stimulatory effect that they would have at a time when the economy is soft, when demand is soft. So there's a lot of good arguments for doing it. And if Labor is uh, sort of bloody-mindedly standing in the way of tax cuts down the, down the track, but uh, holding these tax cuts hostage, the government will think it's got a political win on its hands, even though it's um, you know, coming at the cost of the economy. So there's some pretty high stakes going to be played here. And mm. I, I think um, 
Labor would want to think very carefully about uh, whether it wants to have a huge bare-knuckle fight over this so quickly after losing an election and so quickly after losing one that everyone thought it was going to win. Absolutely. Uh, Mark Kenny sitting in for us here on The Professor and the Hack uh, for Peter Van Onselen. Uh, we've got a lot to discuss. There's, uh, there, is a, there is a great deal going on and we're going to do that after a very brief break. If you want news delivered differently... Rebel Wilson is co-hosting the show tonight. It's confusing, Harry, because like, I'm also blonde and white. So. Uh, the project is where it's at. Tomorrow is the National Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. If it's going down... What the hell is going on? We're breaking it down. Would you go so far as to say that Facebook have destroyed democracy? We need to go back to MySpace, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's the news tuned to a different beat. Good times, Carrie. Good times. The project, weeknights on 10. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack with Mark Kenny here for Peter Van Onselen, who's on holiday. Um, a couple of things which uh, strike me. One is that as we record this, um, Scott Morrison is taking a few days off. Um, he's had a very long, effective, virtual political campaign that has run ever since he came to office in August of last year. Parliament is about to uh, start up again. So it's Michael McCormack, uh, the National Party leader and, of course, Deputy Prime Minister, who is... Uh, um, holding the big chair just for the moment as the acting Prime Minister. And it gives us a moment to reflect, Mark, that um, much as it was um, Scott Morrison who got the credit for winning the un unwinnable election, Michael McCormack's a pretty happy guy because going into this election, he looked like he was dead for all money. He did, didn't he? Yeah. yeah it's a really interesting point. Uh, and the comparison was always being made, muttered by people around the place that... Michael McCormack just didn't have the cut through that he was, you know, perhaps a nice guy and all that, but a little bit boring, a little bit kind of unspectacular. He didn't have the personality or the or the kind of, um, you know, the force of 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 his uh, of will, you know, to impose on the on the coalition and that you know the Liberal Party was just going to be dictating terms. And of course, looming over all of this was the shadow of Barnaby Joyce, the previous. Uh, leader of the Nats, the previous Deputy Prime Minister, a figure of, you know, huge profile and interest, uh, controversy, of course. Um, and so, yeah, that was the sort of comparison being made. But the, the Nats have actually done pretty well in this election. And uh, I think uh, they're very happy. They've uh, asserted themselves quite well. And uh, I think um, Michael McCormack, as you say, is quite relieved and so are the Nats generally. And you don't hear much talk about Barnaby coming back at the moment. No, you sure don't. Not at the moment. Now, speaking about talk about uh, figures from the past, we had the spectacle, uh, the moving spectacle of the memorial service for uh, Bob Hawke. And it was a reminder to, I guess, everyone in the political classes and to the Australian people that uh, there was a time when uh, future-facing political reform was the very central order of business for the government. And uh, with two figures, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, you had two brilliant um, human beings who had enormous force of personality, a great willingness to persuade, to shift reform through. How do you think, um, as they discussed all this over the tea and the tiny cakes afterwards, the current uh, year of political operators were thinking as they look back at that? Well, it's a really good question because I, I just think the whole thing, the whole advent of, of Bob Hawke, his death two days before polling day in that election, was such a fascinating sort of political circumstance, such, a, such an interesting dynamic for what it 
raised for what it you know raised in terms of comparisons between labor now and 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 labor then but also just politics then and also i think you have to temper some of that with you know uh, a little bit of caution about the nostalgia that you know the nostalgic lens through which which we tend to look back on some things you know forgetting some of the details you forget the space in between sometimes the um you know the big uh, events that occurred or the uh, um you know the the achievements that were made in a reform sense you tend to forget how difficult they might have been so i think there's probably in and in, in over those uh, tea and cakes and in the whole reflection about the hawk keating period there were there were probably some people who are also saying look Let's not kid ourselves that that was all easy. You know. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think anyone presumes it was easy. But I think what struck me is that you had a, a, effectively a funeral for a, for a man. And uh, normally it, it, at a funeral people will say what a great bloke he mm. was and all the usual kinds of stuff about it. And, and you got that. But what you also got from Bill Kelty, from Kim Beasley, from Ross Garno, the former uh, chief uh, economics advisor to Bob Hawke there, uh, even from Scott Morrison in a very, very powerful and I thought very generous, well-measured speech from mm. the current prime minister, what they were talking about was policy. It was the, po- and of course from Keating himself, it was about policy. It was the substance of the changes yeah, yeah. that the Hawke government had brought through. Uh, you know, the Howard can point to, to to policy, particularly on the GFC and intervening in East Timor and the gun buybacks, uh, you know, rather more controversially in the way in which he, he, he bound us to the American alliance with the Iraq invasion and so on and mm, Afghanistan. Mm, mm. Um, so there's no doubt about Howard having a legacy of real genuine substance. But probably it would be fair to say the Hawke-Keating legacy is a larger one in terms of its transformative difference. And yet there is the sense that either because the times, the digital age has made that too difficult or perhaps the personalities are smaller, but no one or, seems or to be Or perhaps some it. of those things have been done. I mean, they, there is a little bit of, uh, of, of that about it too, isn't there, that, you know, you, you only get to float the dollar once, you only get to sort of, uh, you know, lower tariff uh, tariffs on, on imports sort of once, uh, unless, unless you're like Trump and you reimpose them again, of course. <laughs> um, you know, so there was some, there was some big, big, sort of jobs of reform that were taken on by the Labor government through the 80s and, and the 90s. Uh, and that's true. There's no denying that. But having done those, some of the, you know, the, the reform tasks after that are perhaps a little less sexy, a little less uh, momentous and don't tend to get reflected as well. I mean, I do think there is an element of that. I don't wish to minimise the achievement. I think what was really interesting, though, about the comparison between then and now and particularly in the comparison as it applied to Labor, was that we were in an election campaign when Bob died uh, where, as I say, Labor was expected to win and where the whole thing had been about Labor's big target strategy, its detailed policy agenda in a, in a range of areas. And there was some, you know, admiration, I think, ahead of the election on the part of people, uh, you know, across the spectrum, certainly from the, from the centre to the left, some admiration that he was a party putting forward you know, redistributive plans that uh, that were, you know, exposed the, the Labor Party to some criticism uh, and that th- this was um, in that whole tradition. But in a way, what I think that overlooked, apart from the fact that it turned out not to work, uh, what, what it overlooked is that Hawke and Keating, as you said before, they sort of did it in a bit of a piecemeal way. They got in on the question of sort of values, Bob Hawke's fantastic slogan in 1983, bringing Australia together. 
was all, you know, very, very kind of social cohesion and inclusion and and, and But also the implicit requirement was to get the economy back on track yeah. because it had double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, double-digit interest rates, and the economy had shrunk by more than 2% uh, in the previous year. So... Uh, That's right. There'd been, there'd been a long drought, there'd been recession, uh, and, of course, there was still the overhang of the highly divisive socially and politically divisive, uh, you know, prospect, uh, things that happened in the mid-70s the with dismissal the dismissal of the yeah. Whitlam government. And so Hawke was telling, selling this very compelling and optimistic message of reconciliation and reconstruction. And that was, you know, that was pitch perfect for the time and it got elected. And then the government set about doing things. And I think one of the lessons that comes out of all of this that we can say now, having watched that period and having watched what happened at the election, is that Voters are quite conservative in changing governments and governments can change countries. Governments can change the nation, but voters tend to only want to change the government and they'll leave that second part of it uh, for a government to do. And governments can do, you know, use all of the, uh, the, the bureaucracy and the power of incumbency to float ideas and to prosecute those ideas, develop them and, and, and sell them and actually enact those change. Whereas what Labor was proposing at the election here in 2019 was arguably to do both, to try and change the nation from opposition. And it turned out to be, I think, too big a task. You're asking uh, and, about it, and it was too, it was too focused on redistribution. Yes. And, and I think that was the... Uh, that was the thing that people balked at. At the bottom line, shorn of everything, that the large range of things that were being offered up by the, the Bill Shorten uh, option was fundamentally redistributive yeah. and transactional. Vote for us, you'll get free cancer care, you'll yeah. get free dental care. Uh, and those are fine and noble things to have, but people knew that it was going to have to be paid for and that the tax elements of it, I think, was the thing that, that people don't like, the idea of more and more taxes. And it exposed Labor to the charge that the government was making that it was just redistributive, that it wasn't about growing the pie, it was just about taking some off, taking some slices of pie off some people who were getting too much and giving them to some people who were getting too little. Now, that's a nice idea, but going into an election creating discrete, identifiable classes of losers is a pretty heroic thing to do politically. Even one of the Labor people said to me, who does that? Uh, well, Labor tried to do it, and those those people who were going to go backwards as a result of losing their frank credit, uh, frank dividend credits, and uh, um, you know people who had investment houses or whatever, people who were going backwards, they knew exactly who they were, and they were quite vocal about it, and uh, it uh, didn't play well. Whereas the group that was going to benefit from a number of the things that Labor was doing, I think that was a more diffuse group, uh, harder to identify, and. The, the, as we saw, the politics of that turned out to be quite toxic for Labor. Mm. Well, one player who's going to be enormous in the Morrison government is the highly controversial Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, the most powerful national security uh, minister Australia has ever seen in peacetime. You were there on the uh, couch on Insiders, ABC Insiders, when uh, he came up to do the interview um, and we, and we didn't see from him, you know, we've had since the election, of course, the, the raids on the, the News Corp journalist, on the ABC, uh, a whole bunch of questions about whether we have erred too far into a, towards a police state. Um, what was the impression you got of Dutton's demeanour um, as questions were put to him? Look, I thought his demeanour was, was, was pretty good, I have to say, um, pretty uh, calm and reasoned. I think he made his case... 
uh, as I say, quite sort of calmly and methodically. He, he, he generally does. I mean, he has a, uh, a kind of a bully boy reputation and particularly plays up to that in the, in the parliament itself where I think he, he channels a bit of Paul Keating, strangely enough, even though from the other side of politics. And, the, and you know, every now and then he, he's, he's quite effective at that. But he, he's a very, as you say, very controversial figure. Uh, you either like him or you hate him and there are plenty of people who really are on the negative side when it comes to Peter Dutton partly because of his sort of hardline policies regarding asylum seekers. Um, I mean, one of the things we saw from him there is that he is... Nothing that has happened in recent weeks seems to have shifted in any way his uh, position on things like promoting the idea that the Australian Signals Directorate, this was the heart of the Mm. story that led to the police raid on Annika Smethurst's house and famously on her underwear drawer, um, and which we were told, in fact, had been shot down. This is the notion that what was formerly called the Defence Signals Directorate would be directed inward towards Mm. Australian citizens rather than purely outward. Um, And he seemed to be giving life to that as being a sensible proposal. Yeah, well, uh, he, that's right. He's not, he does, he's not one who takes backward steps and he wasn't really taking any backward steps there. Uh, but I think he was making the point that, uh, he was trying to make the point that to the extent that the ASD would be directing some of its, uh, capacities inward, it would be directed specifically at groups that were engaged in, um, you know, online criminal activity uh, or the, you know, the lead up to criminal activity, conspiracy to commit major criminal acts and so forth, whether that be... I wonder how people know that, though, unless you're looking. Yeah, look, it is a very tricky area. There's no question about that. And that's why I think Annika's story originally was clearly in the public interest. Even if these powers are legitimate to be given to the ASD for these purposes, I don't see why that cannot be the subject of a proper public debate. It doesn't need to remain a secret power. Absolutely. It needs a debate because while these powers may be necessary and there's an argument to be made for it, uh, uh, you know, the e-safety commissioner, uh, Julian Inman Grant, speaks a lot about, uh, you know, is concerned, I think, by the naivety that most of us live in mm. about the degree to which, for example, global pedophile networks operate, uh, how much they exist in a, in a digital world, in the dark spaces on the net, and how pervasive they are. So the notion that there might be need to be extra powers and tools to, say, disrupt some of those operators is, is an argument that can be made, but it should be made out in the public space. And the talk about having proper oversight to make sure that you don't get that mission creep into um, chasing down whistleblowers, using yeah. these tools to... Uh, to get people who are not letting off any secrets that are going to do any damage to the country, just reveal bad practices within uh, the government and the bureaucracy. Um, That's where the concern lies and where the oversight is so necessary and and where, frankly, the doubts exist as to whether Peter Dutton has the instincts uh, to give much room for that kind of oversight when he wants the extra powers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you put it perfectly and uh, it is really about that balance. And the and the answer to that is as much transparency as is possible, particularly in terms of the policy, if not in terms of the enactment of those powers, but in terms of the policy, you know, that, that would give the state those powers. Uh, and of course, vigorous ongoing oversight. And we just haven't had that in Australia. This is the problem. We've had something like 75 pieces of legislation since September 11 in 2001. And very few people would argue against any of those individual increments. But the cumulative effect is a is a strong, you know, a very severe tightening of 
um, of freedoms in Australia and they're critical freedoms to a proper functioning liberal democracy and we need to guard that very jealously. And I think both sides of politics have been too eager to be uh, persuaded by security agencies about the need for these ever-expanding powers and they've used those that, that leverage uh, you know, very strongly in justifying them. We need someone, we need a, a, a process in the parliament which is sufficiently robust and, and um, uh, you know, courageous to actually ask all of these difficult questions, to really make uh, security agencies and governments justify whether they really need to go that far and, and to justify it on an ongoing basis so that, as I say, I think oversight is, is absolutely critical here in terms of how these powers are being used on an ongoing basis. Well, speaking about freedoms, we've seen in recent days these extraordinary scenes on the streets of Hong Kong with... Uh, uh, up to 2 million people taking to the streets to resist a, a law that they wanted to pass, which would have the effect of allowing the extradition of people who are deemed to have broken laws within China, uh, allowing them to be extradited over the border to basically disappear into uh, what passes for a legal system in China. And by the way, that would also apply to anyone passing through Hong Kong airport uh, could be seized under these uh, rules and um, or, or the rules that have now been put aside for the moment and not legislated after the protests. Um, I mean, these are enormous scenes. One of the first uh, major acts as Prime Minister in the new parliament will be Scott Morrison going to the G20 in Japan at the end of this month. He will meet up there with Xi Jinping. Um, he, he met up with, you know, was in company of Trump and others during the D-Day commemorations. But the G20 is a moment in which um, our Prime Minister will be in, in the room with these people. It'll be very interesting to see whether he makes any statement um, to gently guide Xi Jinping to an understanding that um, this pursuit of these powers into a place like Hong Kong might be counterproductive. What are you expecting, do you think? Well, frankly, I'm not particularly optimistic about Australia making strident statements here because I think we've seen a, a, a fairly mute response from the mainstream of politics and government in Australia over these... Um, demonstrations. I mean, as you say, it's been a really remarkable uh, um, show of, of public will uh, in Hong Kong. People are resisting this expansion of these powers from Beijing. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think it's um, one of those things where you would expect uh, liberal democracies like our own to be very strongly siding with those people, particularly seeing as they are seeking to assert rights that they have and rights that they were guaranteed to have in, you know, to maintain as part of the 1997 handover from the UK, you know, from Britain to China of Hong Kong. And uh, those rights seem to be being very severely attenuated by this extradition power. And it could lead to, you know, people being, as you say, I mean, even in Hong Kong airport, but certainly Hong Kongers being uh, extradited to the mainland uh, where they would face uh, uh, courts that do not have the, the appropriate uh, separation of powers and which would uh, be capable of, uh, you know, um, incarcerating them for so-called political crimes, for saying things that are inconvenient to the government in Beijing. And that's a, that's a very, it's an appalling situation. I think the people of Hong Kong are, uh, are showing remarkable resolve and they're doing so in huge numbers. And I, I would like to think that Australia would take a robust position. Perhaps behind closed doors, that's what Scott Morrison will do. Sometimes the best diplomacy is done privately. You know, going back to what we were just saying, about, you know, secrecy and openness and so forth. It is true sometimes that saying things publicly backs 
other parties into a corner when you might be able to prevail upon them privately. Maybe at the G20 there will be these things said, uh, but uh, I'm not that optimistic. Perhaps we'll discover uh, a powerful diplomatic force in Scott Morrison as he starts on those rounds. Who knows? Um, Mark Kenny, Senior Fellow at the ANU, our stand-in professor for uh, Peter Van Onselen on The Professor and the Hack. Uh, so great to talk to you today. Thanks, Hugh. It's been a great pleasure. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 